Okay, so um, I had as a working title um, for this talk, uh, which I don't get to until very much at the end, but I'll tell you what it is anyway. Uh, at the very least, at the very least, please fail at self-care. That's the working title. So I was um, recently complaining to someone as I often do, it's one of my favorite things to complain about, uh, is how Saturday Night Live isn't funny anymore. Amen. It's awful. <laughs> uh, which sent me, and this happens to me every few months, back down the rabbit trail of YouTube to figure out, uh, looking, looking for the times when it was really funny because there were some golden times, maybe few and far between, uh, which led me, of course, to one of my favorite sketches of all time, which is the one with Phil Hartman. Do I have his name right? Phil Hartman is playing Jesus, and Sally Fields is playing an overwrought, keyed-up um, southern housewife who prays about every little tiny thing. Do you know which one I'm talking about? If you don't know, after this, you should Google it and go watch it. Uh, so, um, she also says, you know, she and her, her daughter and her husband, every few minutes they say, praise Jesus, praise the Lord. They're sort of classic Southern Christian. So she prays first for her, her child's algebra test. She prays for her husband's business meeting. And then her husband and child leave her there. And she's alone in her kitchen. She puts her hands together. And she prays, she begins to thank Jesus for bringing Luke and Laura back onto General Hospital. <laughs> and she's praying, and at that moment, Phil Hartman, or Jesus, if you will, appears in her kitchen. And she, of course, is thrilled and a little freaked out. It's not quite what you would expect to feel if you were in the same room with Jesus. She's kind of really stressed. She kneels at his feet. She kisses his hand. She's crying. And she says, oh, Jesus, I love you so much. And Phil Hartman says, I appreciate that. <laughs> then she says, oh, Jesus, I pray to you all the time. And Phil Hartman says, I know. <laughs> That's why I've come to talk to you. <laughs> And then, just to paraphrase, uh, you should go watch the whole sketch. Uh, he says, I, I'm just wondering if you could try uh, only praying about the things that are really important. And so they sit down at her kitchen table, and he tries to explain, if, you know, could you just not pray about the rice and the dish disposal? And she begins, she cries, she's confused. Um, and she covers her face with her sweater, beautiful blue sweater, um, in humiliation, and begs Jesus not to look at her. So then Phil Hartman, or Jesus, if you will, uh, of course realizes his mistake. And he tries to make it better, and it, he just realizes it's not going to be okay. So he, he leaves and turns back time so that she forgets what just happened, and the sketch ends, and she's praying once again for all the things in her day, every little tiny thing in her day. 
It's one of SNL's most brilliant moments for so many reasons. Uh, and I would love to talk about all of those reasons with you, like um, that it was okay back in the day to be Christian, um, but also that this picture of the Christian a sort of purposeless, stay-at-home, anxious housewife is probably one of the reasons that many people felt free to chuck the whole thing, you know, in recent times. I won't talk about that. <laughs> that would be a great talk. Uh, no, what I really uh, one of my I'll confine myself. Um, this this single three-minute clip of comedic genius uh, illumines, I think an unacknowledged assumption that many people have about Jesus, one which arises from being modern people in a complicated world. Uh, And I think this assumption grows necessarily out of the astonishing technology that we all have access to. I mean, there's some great phones in the room tonight. I I love all the phones here. Um, But the phones that we all have also contribute, I think, to the sense of malaise that we have. We're just kind of um, bored and sad. Uh, And yet, um, our lives are ordered completely by the convenience and comfort that's given to us by our technology. Um, Which, you know, Sally Fields is there in her beautiful kitchen everything she could possibly want. She doesn't have anything to do except watch a soap opera. Um, And so we're not, it's easy to buy the lie or the the assumption really that we're not supposed to suffer Uh, and that we're not, we are not actually suffering. We may feel terrible, but we're not really suffering. Therefore, we should only appeal to God for the things that are really important. So it's okay to pray about the algebra test. Phil Hartman says you should definitely pray about the test. Uh, But don't pray about the rice being either too sticky or not sticky enough. Because you should be able to figure that part out yourself. Don't pray. Google. (laughs) And so Sally Fields is funny because she could pull herself together in this scenario. She doesn't need to be crazy and weeping and anxious in her kitchen praying about every little tiny thing. She could make the rice and enjoy her soap opera. Her dependence on prayer shows her to be pathologically anxious and, and this is the kicker, irritating to Jesus. Our culture tells us that we should be able to cope. We should be able, here's the line of the age, to do better. We should be happier than all previous generations. And because we're not, we can avail ourselves of a billion-dollar self-help industrial complex to help us pull our acts together. The underlying theological assumption is that God helps those who having used all the technology to its full capacity, then do just need a little extra boost to help them through. So if you do feel basically unhinged, maybe not all the time, but occasionally, uh, does that make you a bad person? Maybe you should go to a big conference uh, with one of those really famous evangelicals 
and start keeping a bullet journal and doing mind maps. Maybe you should confine your prayers to that which is most important. Uh, so, um, let, to find out if that's true, let's go back to uh, the very end of the text that Matt was talking about this morning, of which I cannot remember. The, it's, it's a Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, and I, I don't know the verse either because you didn't, you went all the way up to the verse, but then you didn't say it. Uh, Paul is boasting about his suffering for the sake of Christ. And he lists all the bad things that happened to him. He was beaten, shipwrecked, um, beaten again, stoned, put in prison. And he was anxious about all the churches. And then he says, do I have to say the verse? I don't really have to say it, do I? Okay, it's in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, he concludes this way, For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to take that line, when I am weak, then I am strong, and I want to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to skip past basically all of the sermon, including the commandment to be perfect, as your Father in Heaven is perfect, and go into the next chapter, which is chapter 6, past the part about giving, past the Lord's Prayer, the part about fasting, the eye and the lamp and the treasure in heaven. Skip all of that if you have it up on your phone. And go to verse 25. So, taking the, Paul's admonition or declaration that when he's weak, then he's strong. Let's go to this other command by Jesus which to me feels like a cruelty. Um, This is even worse for me than the one about being perfect, which I can't do. This is the one about anxiety. Jesus says, do not be anxious. He goes on, about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So let's pause here, contemplating our diets and our wardrobes, just for a minute. Anxiety, you may or may not have noticed, is the bread and butter of modern life. Even if you pray all the time, and you do everything that Jesus has commanded you to do, which you aren't doing, you will probably still be anxious. You will. In fact, I find that prayer, even if I'm praying like Sally Fields, Uh, Prayer sometimes makes me more anxious because then I remember a lot of stuff that I hadn't thought of before uh, when I was busy just freaking out about myself. Then I begin to pray and the the Lord, the Holy Spirit, uh, reminds me of this sore-covered beggar lying by the side of the road. Um, Or, you know, I realize that he's there as I'm praying. Or in my case, uh, this last year, um, our church came to know about a shocking and terrible predicament of an actual person in another country. A Christian woman was kidnapped by her employer, kept in a room for a whole year, and every month they would come and draw her blood and use it for nefarious spiritual things. And they were planning to actually do a human sacrifice. They were going to sacrifice her. around Christmas time. No lie. Okay, we, you know, you're praying, 
And that's what you find yourself praying about. Tell me not to be anxious. By an incredible miracle, this person was uh, rescued and restored to her children. Uh, But I mean, the sufferings of Lazarus, which we we contemplated last night, are really nothing compared to the kind of year that this woman had. And so I and others in our church prayed for her desperately day after day. We sent her some material help after she was rescued. And incidentally, we did not feel, we didn't barely feel a sense of relief when she was rescued. I mean, she's still in a great deal of turmoil and pain. And there was certainly no sense of exaltation about anything that happened. If you want to be anxious, try praying. (laughs) There are so many things to pray about. So many troubles, big and small, real. And of course, we might say that some of them are imagined. But who are you to know to be able to judge what is really important enough to pray about? Anxiety is for everyone. Christian or non-Christian. And then Jesus comes along and tells us not to have it. How wretched, I think, to be a Christian, to be anxious and thereby disobeying Jesus with every breath of my whole life. I suppose, probably, the angels carrying Lazarus to Abraham's side explained to him on the way about how much time he'd been wasting being anxious about lying there on the ground, covered in all his sores. That's probably what happened. No, so when I'm anxious, I, it generally means uh, that I'm suffering situational anxiety. I don't have to be medicated for my anxiety, although maybe that's something I should look into someday. Um, but really what I want is for my circumstances to be resolved in such a way that I can carry on with my life. If I were Paul there in my house with that guy chained to my arm, unlike him, I would not be rejoicing with all of his contentment. I wouldn't have been doing that. I would be vibrating with anxiety. Like when I have to get all my kids uh, to go to the same place at the same time in the same car, and I can't get any of them to listen to me at all, and minutes are going by, and it's getting later and later. I get very anxious, or I need something to happen, but I can't make it happen. I don't know how. I don't have all the information. I don't know what to do, and so I just don't do anything. I just they're anxious. Or worse, sometimes I do know what to do, but I don't want to do it, so I'm just anxious about it, and I just don't do it. Or I lack strength. I, I can't. I can't get off the couch. So then mean, horrible Jesus comes along and says, don't be anxious, and I just feel ever more burdened. But that's not actually the kind of command that it is. This is not Jesus standing afar off, lecturing you, and it's not Phil Hartman coming into your kitchen and rolling his eyes about what an idiot you are. It is actually Jesus standing next to you, or very near to you in your own heart. Um, So close, probably, that you might be taking him for granted sometimes. That you may even have forgotten what it was like when he wasn't there, so that you don't even remember what kind of anxiety that was. 
We can know that this is not a burdensome command uh, because it actually comes with a word before it that I left off. This is a, a generous and gracious and helpful word that Jesus puts before this command. It's actually, I, I think it's like a gateway, if you were here last night, a, an imposing structure, something so beautiful and well-constructed, so enduring that once you've seen this gate or, or seen this word, you won't be able to get it out of your mind. It will draw you in. It's a word that really uh, gathers up, it, it encompasses not only everything that we've been saying over the last day, but everything that the scriptures teach us about God. And it is the word that you, of course, know if you have your text open in front of you. It's the word, therefore. Therefore, do not be anxious. This therefore, in a textual way, refers to everything that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, which began, if you know the sermon, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the cast down, blessed are those who are crushed under their own grief, which is a way to say that the order of the cosmos is different than what we expected or what we saw with our own eyes. What we see is not what we get. What we expect is not how things are organized. The man lying by the side of the road is helped by God. While the people I thought for sure had it all, in the end sometimes find that they didn't have anything. More than that, because of the work that Christ does to overturn death, the therefore in this text comes with real power. Because of who is saying it, because Jesus is the one that says this word, it's not meant to cause you to stumble, therefore do not be anxious. No, that therefore is the power of Christ's spirit dwelling in you richly through faith. It is the rooting and the grounding in lo- of love. It's the, a word that plants you as a tree by streams of water, so that when the tempest uh, comes and blows you over, you stand back up again. It is the strengthening required to comprehend or to understand what is the breadth and height and length and depth of the love of God. I feel like I'm riffing off of Paul in one of his letters, but I don't know which one. The therefore is... uh, the intimate, transforming knowledge of Jesus in and through the scriptures. As intimate and humiliating are all your failures, this, therefore, is that intimate as well. It is to know so completely that your true self, your lived experience, if you want to use the term of the day, is actually already standing there next to Abraham through Christ spiritually, Enjoying the consolations that Christ won for you on the cross. The therefore is the gate. It's beautiful. But you are able to look, at, look through it from both directions. 
You can be uh, the beggar lying on the ground, begging for help, looking through the gate up to Abraham's side. But sometimes you can be there next to Abraham, looking back at the details of your own life, uh, what you will eat and what you will wear, pondering those things from the position of the majesty of God. You can look at, at it from both directions. So from this angle, whichever one you want to pick, what does Paul mean then when he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong? Does he mean, as some immensely popular and heretical teacher that I was reading recently, suggests that your greatest weakness is actually, once you learn how to exploit it, your greatest strength? That that your greatest strength and your greatest weakness are just two sides of the same coin? Or does he mean that if you really dig down deep, you'll discover that you really had what it takes all along? That your weakness isn't actually weakness, it's actually something else, like strength. No, that's not what this means. For when you are weak, you are actually very weak. Whatever isn't killing you will eventually kill you. It's not going to make you stronger. What Paul means and what Jesus shows us in these short verses is that when you are weak, when you fail... You are uniquely positioned more than anyone else in the entire world who either doesn't fail or more likely won't admit that they fail to be helped by God. That might feel anticlimactic, which is fine, like when you discover that the precious treasure you get when you go to heaven is actually Jesus and you were hoping for a pony. In reality, though, You being weak, desperately and terribly and and humiliatingly weak, means that you can bring everything, the smallest and the greatest, the most galling and the most glorious, the most mundane and the most mystical, the thing that satisfied you, the accomplishment, and the total defeat of failure, Everything can come to Jesus. Uh, You can be Sally in her kitchen, Sally Fields, with her anxious and psychotic weeping, if that's what you want to do. In particular, though, you you can look more carefully at the stuff that looms large over your own day, over your own life. The stuff that is, though, we would count it to be inconsequential. Um, stuff that if you like to be on the internet searching around, uh, you push to the back of the cupboard and then you go onto online forums and complain about how you are, your executive functioning doesn't work because you're the executive functioning brain for your whole family if you're a woman. I know, you never are interested in this, but you're, you don't have good executive function. <clears throat> I'm just getting you back. <laughs> You can have all your wives, but they still have to organize your calendar. (laughs) What is it? It's the being brain. You're you're the brain for the whole family. That's what it is. No. Uh, All the stuff that has fallen in our cultural moment under the heading of executive function, but also really more self-care and wellness 
and even hustle and adulting. We have all these great words now. But in previous ages meant living and not dying. That's all this stuff is. Eating and drinking and clothing should not be self-care. Because, look at the text, they are part of God's care for you. An alien outside care for you that you don't do yourself. Because they are so intimate, so related to the troubles of the body, which in turn annoy and trouble the mind and spirit, we are tempted to think that these things are are ours by right, that we own them. And because they're ours by right, by ownership, they are then also our responsibility, and so we need to work hard, conquer them, Um, turn them into products of our own strength, what we eat and what we wear. You can do something called self-care Sunday now, instead of going to church, uh, which means that you sit around in your house and play music on Spotify and take a hot bath. It's total garbage. Go to church. Uh, when we, if we look at the page here together, you'll see that eating and drinking and wearing things are gifts given to you by God. They are God's provident care for you because he loves you. And as, as such, they are a sign of even greater and more glorious provision. Jesus, in these short verses, goes from lesser to greater. His reasoning toggles back and forth between something that looks tiny to something that's enormous. From something physical and material to something spiritual. So that you can go on through your whole life reasoning through everything this way, from the lesser to the greater. So, what is his opening salvo? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You are a person who, though you die, you will live forever. But you are also a person who, like Lazarus, unless the Lord is your helper, are utterly beggared, Without any food or any clothing, whatever you have comes from him. Even if it's something that you don't think you want. Even if it's something that you went and drove in your own car and bought it with your own money and brought it home, that was still given to you by God. Who is your helper? Arguing from lesser to, gre- lesser to greater, look at the birds of the air. Not the huge, creepy, defiant vulture of southern Florida where we were that followed us on our walk because he didn't want to fly and was like staring at us. Not that kind of bird. Uh, No. The delicate, fluttering bird that looks so fragile because it is. It's fragile. It It will easily perish. The bird that cannot premeditate his own care doesn't have time because of all the digging and uh, nest building that has to happen, having to huddle together for warmth in the winter. Are you less valuable to God as you wander up and down the, usually at least where we are, overstuffed grocery aisle, but we don't have any food now because of the stuff in that, in California, stuck there. Do you guys have food here? We can't buy fish. 
It's weird. Uh, Are you less valuable to God when you're trying to think about what to make for dinner? Does he not care about all the complications that you navigate through your day? Of course not. Don't be ridiculous. And what will you wear? I mean, I couldn't even think about what I was going to say tonight until I had gone out and bought a bunch of clothes, brought them home, tried them on, returned them, tried on everything I had, gone through my daughter's wardrobe, screamed at everyone, and then I did that for a while. Arguing from lesser to greater, look at the lilies of the field. These are even more fragile than the birds. I grow lilies in my garden, not very well because I'm allergic to them. They make my eyes swell up and um, turn red. But I, so I can't weed them, I can't cut them and bring them inside, but I love them so much. So I go out and stand in the summer and just stare at them. They're so lavish and so delicate. They last only for about a month in my zone, gardening zone. Are you less of less concern to God than my lilies? Of course not. Don't be ridiculous. Do you have anything to wear? Though you will never be as beautiful as a lily in this life, yet God who clothes you is transforming you into a being whom, if uh, a mortal would see you when you were standing next to him in glory, as Lewis says, would worship you as a god you would be so beautiful. As you struggle from one outfit into another, try to just put shoes on your children's feet, you are being made day by day into a thing of beauty. Oh, you of little faith, says Jesus, argue from lesser to greater, from your dinner plans and your wardrobe to the material point which is that nothing is yours to worry about. Because you belong to Jesus, everything about your life is his concern. He knows whereof you are made, that you are but dust, as brief as a shadow, as a field of ripening grass, as a lily, as a bird. And because that's so, he sets only one thing before you to worry about. This anxiety will push away all the other anxieties. This will help you leap over the chasm from hell to heaven. This is what he says. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And that, of course, is terribly, terribly hard. And yet, it can be done anywhere. You can do it, you can seek first the kingdom of God if you are trapped in a dark room being tortured by the ungodly. You can do it if you're lying by the side of the road. You can do it at your own dinner table. You can do it in your car. Wherever you are, no matter your frame of mind, no matter what is going on, it is only the very desperate cry to God, like the fragile call of a dove or the helpless cry of a child's, or even the mute longing of your own heart. Help me, O my Lord, my helper, help me. God listens to the person who prays this prayer, moment by moment by moment, 
in awful and humiliating dependence. You don't need to hide your face out of humiliation and shame, but you can actually look at Jesus. And this is the part that none of us could have anticipated before it happened. When you ask God to help you, he offers himself to be your food. He offers his own body to cover you. He pours out his own life to quench your thirst. Into that person who has cried out for help, the Lord builds his entire kingdom in that person. For that person, he perfects the soul. He heals the wounds. He feeds the hungry heart. He pours wine mixed with water down into eternity. So don't be a failure. Go to Jesus for help.